You are listening to the Mythical Jesus Podcast, taking the Christ of faith seriously. A podcast that dives into faith development, cognitive development, using Jesus as the framework for that. We dive deep into the Jesus of the New Testament, showing him as the preeminent example of development and what that development looks like. Buckle your seatbelts. Sit back, enjoy the ride. This is going to be a lot of fun because diving into the Jesus narrative has never been done like this before. You can visit our website at christoffaith.org. On the site, you will find tools, resources, documents to help you in your faith development and to better understand Jesus, the teacher, and his role in that. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Come thou fount of every blessing. Welcome to the Mythical Jesus Podcast found at Christoffaith.org. I'm your host, Bill Real. Just grateful to have you as a listener. Grateful that you tuned in. Today we're going to talk about Mark chapter 3, verse 20. And we'll go through verse 21, just two verses. Verse 20, then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. First, notice there's a recognition that Jesus is inconvenienced by the crowd. He can't even eat. Jesus is so encircled by a crowd and pressed upon to speak. To engage so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Of course, Jesus gets hungry, but such an idea seems foreign to us because Jesus, having been taught to us as half God, half man, we sometimes seem to not quite grasp that this Jesus figure was fully susceptible to the feelings of being human, including hunger. So not being able to eat when one is hungry, when food is sitting in front of them, when they want nothing more than to take a bite and to take in nourishment. The crowd is such a size and so imposing as to keep him and his disciples from eating. Can we have compassion on Jesus? Can we have compassion on his disciples? Can we have empathy? Do we relate? There's been times in my own life where I've had this happen. I'll share one story just so that you can understand. So I'm invited to do a fireside, a fireside in Henderson, Nevada, just outside of Las Vegas. This would have been around 2014. At that fireside, I was invited to do a short presentation and then to take on questions from the crowd. Before this fireside, there was a gracious dinner offered by the host to all in attendance. The crowd is small, but significant to me, about 40 or 50 people there. The food is Mexican food, tacos and burritos, which by the way, I love. I'm the featured speaker. I'm the person that people are coming to see, to hear. The dinner starts at six. And the fireside is to start at seven. The food is laid out and all of us go out into the backyard where this is all to take place. And the food is 
laid out, a beautiful spread of delicious food to partake of. Before I can even grab a plate, people are walking up to introduce themselves to me, to tell me who they are, where they're from. The purpose of this fireside was to meet with those who were beginning to deconstruct their religious system and who were in that stage that we can only best describe that it feels like a faith crisis. They're hurt. They're in pain. They know not what to do. Their world has been turned upside down and their religion is so intertwined with their normal daily life, with their relationships, with their family, their friends, that such is full of anguish and turmoil. And here they are meeting with me, hoping that I can offer some way to make sense of this transition that they're in. I'm looking at the food. I'm hungry. I want to eat. I want to put something in my belly before I'm going to stand up and address this crowd. But I also love these people. They have needs and I care. It's the reason I'm there. And so in our minds, we again place people in a binary system where we say like, Bill, toughen up. These people came to see you. Give them your time. Give them the, the, this moment where they get to talk to you. They get to tell you their story. They get to tell you their name. They get to express their gratitude for what you do. Like that's all feeds the ego and we love that. But it's not binary. On the other side of that coin is I'm hungry and I want to eat. I want to have some food before I'm going to stand up for a few hours. Because there's going to be no chance to get a bite from that point on. And so as time goes on, one after the other people, as soon as they see one person break away, the next person jumps right in to introduce themselves to express their gratitude, to tell their story. And as the moments go by, as the minutes turn into 20 minutes, turns into 35 minutes, the food is getting cold. And finally, I'm able to break away with about 10 minutes to spare before this starts. And I grab some food, but at this point, the food is cold. And here was this delicious food that I, man, I looked at, with anticipation, like, wow, that's going to be good. And there was a piece of me that hurt, a piece of me that was frustrated and upset that it didn't work exactly the way I wanted it to. Like, why couldn't I eat first and then talk after? Why couldn't I have hot, delicious food and then conversate? You see, we often want to say, there's Jesus. He has everything perfectly aligned There's the Christ. He has his priorities perfect. And the reality is that Christ, Jesus, is also human. He's hungry. And there's a warm spread of food before him. And he cannot eat because of the crowd. His being frustrated that he could not eat has nothing to do with his love of the people in front of him. It is human to feel such things. Second, Notice his family, seeing the huge following he has, and also knowing their sibling or son, they shake their head at Jesus, think that on some level he's not special, and hence this following is absurd. If his followers, and if the crowds only knew him as we know him, 
they would see this, the absurdness of being a religious zealot with Jesus being the focus of that cult following. But isn't this too normal human behavior? Are not our parents and other loved ones the least likely to take a deep interest in our vulnerable selves? To take interest in the deep things we have learned and come to know? To deconstruct? I can share that as I've been on this developmental journey, as I've come to see the limitations of my own ethnocentricity and to move into non-dualistic, non-binary perspectives, that as I've gone back to my brother or my parents to share this development, it is they who love me the most, but who also feel they know me best and distance themselves from those vulnerable conversations. It's as if they say, there's Bill. We know what Bill is and what he's made of and what he's about. There's nothing he could sit with us and say that would express that he's got something new, something interesting to add. But again, this is human. When we have enlightenment and attempt to share that new awareness, is not our loved ones the least likely to take us seriously? Are they not the first to shake their head and say, that's just Frank and his crazy big ideas? As I deconstructed my faith, those around me, they knew that I had put more time into reading and studying my religion than they had. They knew that. And yet, when I expressed that the more I read and the more I studied, that this thing we were all a part of was falling apart from me, that's just Bill and his crazy big ideas. You, as you deconstruct and reconstruct your spiritual and religious world, you will want nothing more. It will be so important to you that your parents, that your spouse, that your siblings, that your loved ones, your friends, that they can hold space to hear you and to validate and understand what you're talking about. When you share this deconstruction and reconstruction, you want nothing more than these people to get it. And yet, it is almost always the most difficult with them. When I have gone to my in-laws, who I love, when I have gone to the f people of my congregation in my religious system, who I considered the best of friends, when I try to have conversations with my parents about my shift, my transition, and my own development, it is in those groups that I find the most resistance. When I stand up in a crowd of 40 or 50 and meet people for the first time, those people welcome the insight. They welcome the ideas and concepts. They welcome you putting words to the story that has been chaos in their own lives. These strangers, they've accepted you from the second they saw you because they knew that your story was their story. It is why Jesus, at later points in the scriptures, points to how a prophet has such difficulty in his own homeland. While you crave those you care about most to understand you, it is often the strangers who share a common story with you, who welcome you fully. 
Then, following these two things happening, we're told in verse 22, And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. So we recognize that then the teachers of the law come along, and they claim he's doing the work of Satan. Notice here, in-group behaviors, when someone in the group refuses to hold the in-group behaviors. Notice the mechanisms of the tribe. When they see that someone is operating outside the rules and boundaries that the tribe has set for itself, immediately there is an effort to distance that person as them and different than us. And quickly we label them as bad while us remains good. This back and forth continues for several verses. Truly, I tell you, verse 28, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whosoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. You see, the moment Jesus does something that runs counter to the way we do things around here, then Jesus is labeled as having an impure spirit. Is it any different with us? Then in verse 31, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mothers and brothers are outside looking for you. Jesus' response, Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. I think this is an important moment because we find this odd. Why is Jesus being disrespectful to his family? That doesn't make sense with our gut. But when you recognize that it is his family who doubts him the most, who who pushes back against his authenticity and his vulnerability, who distance themselves from his sharing, his journey, and his story, and that it is these strangers who sit around, who sit at his feet, and who want nothing more than to hear his wisdom, to hear him articulate their story, because it's his story. Then you realize why he looks and says, here is my mother and my brother, as he points to and looks in the eyes of those seated in a circle around him. It is those that you can be authentic with and belong with who become your family on the other side of this spiritual journey. Until next time, I'm Bill Real. This is the Mythical Jesus Podcast found at ChristofFaith.org. Come thou fount of every blessing, 
Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing.